Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Our federal budget and what it's likely to deliver, what it should deliver, and uh, I know our guest is not going to be unwilling to go out on a limb and tell us what it will deliver. Moshe Lander joins us, economist at McGill University. His fields include business, economics, and international trade. And Moshe, how are you today? Hello. Good to talk to you. Always a pleasure to be on with you. So what are you expecting? What are the givens as far as what uh, Ms. Freeland is going to deliver on the 28th is concerned? I think we're going to hear a little bit of a discussion about uh, health care. That was uh, kind of the big accomplishment in the last few months. And so the great thing with the budget is that sometimes you get to play the greatest hits all over again. Uh, it's not new spending per se because there's already this agreement, but it's going to be presented as if this is uh, a, a major budgetary issue. Uh, we're probably also going to hear something about how to deal with inflation. And I think it's going to be very targeted. Uh Rather than broad measures, inflation is coming down. I don't know that it's going to be a problem in six months, but it is a problem now. And so I think for the government to just shrug and say, I just ride this one out and we'll be good, uh, probably not the best thing to do. So maybe some targeted spending uh, to just try and keep some, some people happy. And of course, the other thing is what they've been harping on for years, which is the environment. And uh, I, I think the uh, inflation act in the U.S. has maybe scared a lot of countries, Canada included, that if they don't get moving on uh, green energy and, and green initiatives, uh, they could be left in the dust. And so I, I think that they're going to start to try and lay out some sort of roadmap for, for how that works. I think beyond that, maybe a little bit of a discussion of when they plan on balancing the budget, little tweaks here and there to the tax code and things like that. And uh, we should have a fun afternoon. <laughs> a fun afternoon. I like that. Uh, what uh, what would surprise you if we get a certain announcement that is not outside the realm of the possible, maybe not expected, but what would surprise you? So I, I think, you know, the government at some point has to deal with its lack of defense spending. I don't know that this is necessarily the time, but it's got to come sooner or later. They, they can't keep ignoring this. Uh, and as Russia continues to muckrake in, in Ukraine, and uh, as we're now discussing Chinese involvement in Canada's elections and just kind of global instability in general. Uh, Canada has an obligation to, to fulfill some of its NATO promises. Uh, this could conceivably be the budget where they start to maybe tip their hand as to what they plan. Uh, but, it, but it would be within the realm of possibility, but a surprise if I heard it. Do you think this, uh, this budget that we're going to hear on the 28th will have been affected by what Mr. Xi, President Xi, will have told... President Putin when they visited in Moscow? I don't know that it's going to have a huge effect, right? Um, remember, Roy, like it's not like they're they're actually working on the budget up until Wednesday. It's probably, you know, already in the can. And uh, at best, it's maybe fine tuning the, the speaking points uh, and maybe adjusting a couple of numbers here and there. But I, I think this is mostly done. I, I don't know that that meeting is going to fundamentally change uh, Canada's security concerns. We have one of the players, uh, you know, causing trouble in Europe and the other one is ready to cause trouble uh, in Asia. And, you know, Canada has a very large, extensive Arctic uh, that would be desirable by both countries. And so there is a national security element here that, that goes beyond just what's going on in the rest of the world. It, it could have impacts here at home uh, in the coming decades. We've spoken a lot about uh, the overall picture of the economy of this country. And then we've talked about what uh, the business community requires in order to continue to keep moving forward and uh, productively. Do you expect this government is going to have something for the business community that is going to be indicative of their interest in the business community and will deliver on promises, maybe, maybe promises is a strong word, with any federal government? Do you think they're going to deliver on expectations? If it's the clean industry, yeah, I think that they're going to be helpful in this budget. If it's the dirty part of the industry here in this country, I don't think that they're going to be offering much in the way of help other than just a warning that uh, get ready, your day is coming. Uh, you, you know, we've talked about uh, electric vehicles, batteries. There's that uh, big factory that's going to 
the uh, built in, in St. Thomas, just south of London, mm -hmm. uh, you know, critical minerals and things like that. that. That stuff is all kind of important in the story here. Um, I, I think what the Canadian business industry more than anything needs right now is merely just clarity and, and some idea of where they stand and what to expect, right? They don't want any surprises. Uh, the last three years have been nothing but mostly beyond the control of the government. But I, I think if nothing else, if they can just outline, we don't plan on disrupting anything, uh, that in itself could be just a huge boost to business. What's the most productive move the government can make? Um, no new taxes. Uh, I, I'm going to go all George Bush on you here. Um, I like, know, I like the sound of no new taxes. Uh, yeah. I, I think a lot of people would at this point. And, and, and I think that if they can say that we can work within our existing means right now, we don't need to broaden, uh, taxes out. We don't need to talk about changing anything fundamentally. We don't need to look at going after the wealthy or trying to take some sort of estate grab and things like that. If they can keep just the existing status quo. Uh, you know, again, that's the type of clarity that keeps people calm. There is the possibility that a recession could be coming later this year. And, and so level-headedness is, is extremely valuable at this point. And, and if the government can show that they remain confident and level-headed, uh, that, that speaks volumes. So if we, uh, if we look at the agreement that the liberals have with the New Democrats, and I spoke with uh, Jagmeet Singh about that on the air two weeks ago, and we've played back various parts of that interview on a couple of occasions since then. Do you think that that agreement and uh, what is implied and what is essentially promised, is it going to play a major part in, in the budget on the 28th, or is it just going to be a, an outlier? No, I, you, you need to have the NDP support in order to, to maintain your role in government here. And so since, you know, the budget is always kind of a, an up and down confidence motion as well, uh, I, I think that you're going to see some of the NDP paw prints on this thing. The problem, of course, is that the NDP fundamentally will always want more spending, any spending. Uh, but the problem is that when we're talking about that inflation might be finally being wrestled under control, you have this competing interest that if you do spend, you could be a source of inflation yourself, necessitating higher interest rates by an independent central bank. So I, I think that the Trudeau government has a very fine line to walk here where they do need to satisfy some of those NDP requirements uh, to maintain their support and some spending might be necessary. Uh, but I, I think that it has to be targeted then. Try and appeal to the NDP's key constituents to allow them to say, we got something for you. But don't create such a huge level of spending uh, that it that it leaves uh, an inflationary imprint on this country. So, can you summarize for me then what you think we're going to be hearing on the twenty eighth when when the uh, when we all get together and we all start to discuss whether it's on the airwaves, whether it's in the halls of power in in, in Ottawa or provincial capitals? Uh, what what are we going to come away with? What do you expect? So I think that we're going to hear a lot of confidence. Um, the, the best way to minimize the damage of a recession is to be confident. If you if you get all negative, that just makes a recession much likelier and much deeper. So, uh, you know, the government's going to present that the deficit is smaller than what they had anticipated even back in November. Uh, they're going to show that they have a vision for what Canada should look like with a cleaner initiative. They're going to show that they are a compassionate government. They're ready to help people that are most in need and affected by inflation. Uh, they stand ready with uh, dry powder to jump in uh, if the economy does go into recession. And so they're going to try and present this idea that they're in control, they're confident that Canada is strong, and it's ready to meet its future needs for the environment and its role within the world. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, what we're going to be left with is that the major announcement of healthcare spending has already been made. So other than kind of that recap and other than maybe a few targeted measures, it's really going to be a lot of the status quo then uh, to just try and get through and see what things look like in six months' time, uh, whether we are, in fact, in a recession or not. All right. Moshe, what about, the, uh, what about the reality that we're living with now as far as our economy is concerned and our economic opportunities and responsibilities uh, are concerned? Uh, how, how's this all going to play into, uh, into the picture? Because not too far down the road, there's another fairly regular event called an election. Yeah, you know, I was I was looking right at some data um, last week, two weeks ago, 
one of the things that had me concerned was the size of government spending in this country has almost doubled in a decade. And a lot of that is not because of COVID. Um, at, at some point, we're starting to reach a, a natural limit of just how big the government can be and how much we can expect it to do. Um, you know, I, I, I think that the worrying exercise now is that uh, in the lead up to an election, uh, you're certainly going to hear from the conservatives that they want to shrink the government. And that might not be an unreasonable thing. Um, but I, I think, of course, the NDP wants to expand the government and the liberals are going to get pinched here as they approach an election as to how do they want to approach the government and what it does, um, depending on which side they fall out on, is probably going to dictate to some extent their electoral prospects in that upcoming election. So, uh, you know, I, I think that they can't grow indefinitely and they do have some major issues coming up. Like I said, defense is one of them. Uh, that healthcare cost, of course, is never going to get smaller as society ages. Uh, and there's a massive amount of infrastructure to hold this big country together that needs to be addressed at some point. Uh, so with all of these big spending initiatives, uh, at some point, the government's going to have to really take a hard look at what else is it going to be able to afford uh, without raising taxes on Canadians and meet its obligations to Canadians. You know, it's true. You say they're going to have to take a look at and see what they can afford. And uh, people know on an individual basis, on a family basis, they know how difficult it is to make uh, ends meet and they know how difficult it is to meet budgetary ex expectations, whether it's family or, or individually. So there's this um, right in my own living room aspect to the budget. And then there's the big picture aspect to this budget. So when it comes to the budget's release, do you think that uh, Canadians are going to by and large, and let's not take politics out of the picture here, do you think the Canadians, by and large, are going to feel confident, going to feel that something positive was done by the Trudeau government as far as the federal budget is concerned? Or do you think that they're going to exercise or engage in another exercise of shooting yourself in the foot is concerned? You know, I think that there's maybe a, a general fatigue with uh, the liberal government that we're starting to reach in Canada. So, you know, unless they make some sort of major announcement, we're going to balance the budget in the next couple of years, or we're going to reduce the GST, or, we're, you know, we're going to do something that, that really grabs a headline. I, I think there's an element of, uh, you know, in the five minute summary that'll be at the top of any newscast after the budget, it's going to be, am I expecting a check in the mail in the next six months? No, then really there's nothing in the budget that affects me at the, the micro level. And mm -hmm. I, I think that a lot of Canadians are going to walk away feeling that uh, the, the budget will have failed to deliver uh, on their micro level concerns, right? It's how do I get through the next six months? Uh, how am I going to deal with these higher interest rates? How am I going to make sure that I keep my home? How am I going to make sure that I keep food on the table uh, and not experience double digit increases? And, and the budget is not designed for and will not deliver on any of those issues. So I, I think that missing that grand announcement, Canadians are just going to shrug and say that they missed an opportunity here, not realizing what really should have been done or could have been done or, or, or needed to be done. Huge story internationally over the last number of days, last week. And that is the story of the president of China, Xi Jinping, visiting with his, what are they, friends for life? With his uh, best friend for life? What's his name? Oh yeah, Putin. In, uh, in Moscow. And it, <laughs> if anybody falls for the routine, that this is something that's new and it's going to be a, a strong relationship that we're all going to benefit from because that's the pitching point, then you need to really examine some of the things that's been put in your diet. Let's talk to Alexander Sherba, our good friend, the former Ukraine ambassador to Austria and member of Ukraine's diplomatic mission to the United States. And uh, uh, Ambassador Sherba is very, very clear with his points and very clear with the issues that he brings forward as far as the relationship is concerned between Ukraine and China and Ukraine and Russia. Uh, Ambassador, good to have you with us. What did you come away with? Hello, Roy. Good to be with you again. Uh, well, uh, we are, of course, uh, watching very closely uh, what was happening in Moscow. And uh, uh, very often it was a feeling of deja vu uh, in the way that uh, 
um, Russia was behaving towards China like, uh, I, I don't know, Ukrainian or Kazakh leaders were behaving when visiting Moscow in the Soviet times, you know, plenty of, you know, flattery, uh, plenty of, you know, attempts to, uh, to be likable by the, the big boss in the center. And uh, the uh, and China's actually uh, well desire well readiness to give some of some of propaganda uh, uh, to Putin uh, and some of the results that Putin wanted in terms of propaganda, but not much outside of that. So there are two things that are interesting for Putin right now uh, in in relation with China. A um, you know, keeping up the support uh, within the country, so propaganda, and to the weapons. And he received uh, plenty of the first, uh, but uh, not much of the second. That's my take. So uh, I gather your take is you're not surprised at anything that happened in Moscow. Nothing. Well, quite frankly, uh, it had its logic in the way that, uh, uh, on the one on the one hand, uh, China uh, is definitely not interested in uh, seeing uh, Russia being uh, crashed, uh, being crushed in this war. Uh, but uh, they also see uh, that uh, Russia is not winning this war, uh, and. Uh, just uh, putting all their eggs in the, into this basket uh, is uh, just just doesn't make uh, much sense for uh, President Xi. Therefore, um, there was some uh, there was huge you know uh, enthusiasm and uh, almost you know tasteless you know accolades uh, on the part of Russia and. Uh, uh, very, very visible constraint on the part uh, of the Chinese delegation. Um, so I think uh, uh, President Xi is trying to walk this delicate line between not letting Russia uh, being, uh, you know, destroyed in this war uh, on the one hand, uh, but also not uh, destroying the relations with the West. I think so far he is doing more or less good. So let me just uh, read this line to you. This is uh, from Global News. Russia has struck a deal with neighboring Belarus to station tactical nuclear weapons on its territory, but will not violate non-proliferation agreements. This is according to Putin, and this news is 28 minutes old. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, it just... Uh... You know, for for, for Russian, uh, for Putin, it's very important to pe to keep uh, his uh, people happy and uh, thrilled, uh, and they are thrilled every time they get reminded of uh, how things were under the Soviet Union. So this is one of the things that reminds them of the good old time when uh, the whole world was uh, anticipating what would be the next step of the Soviet Union, and the whole world had, you know, fear. Uh, for those steps, uh, I don't think that militarily it means anything because uh, um, his whole uh, military might uh, is in Ukraine right now, and he knows that um, the big uh, counteroffensive in Ukraine is coming, and it will decide pretty much everything in this war. So uh, it maybe it's uh, as, as they say a red herring, uh, um, an attempt to, to somehow. Uh, extend uh, the game, but uh, people who know this uh, situation, this uh, how how situation is in Ukraine, how it's developing for Putin, they know that uh, the main uh, most important thing is Donbas and south of Ukraine. So this does not surprise you that Russia has this deal with Belarus to station tactical nuclear weapons on its territory, but uh, they say they'll not violate the non-proliferation agreements. So nothing surprising to you there, but big picture, what does it mean to the rest of the world? Is it is it just messaging, or is it is there more to this? Well, uh, you know they're trying to raise the stakes. Uh, so the closer the effective uh, nuclear tactic nuclear weapons uh, are to each other on both sides of uh, Belarusian Polish border, the uh, more tense the world becomes and uh, russians are enjoying this tension this, this is 
all what what what, what this whole situation is about. So the this whole situation, I mean, the the, the this you know despair that sometimes uh, uh, one can hear in the or feel in the air in the West. Uh, it's a problem for the West, but it's an accomplishment for Russia. Uh, therefore, uh, and they're playing this game very good. So, um, yeah, well, the, the, the tactical weapons will probably be uh, now closer. I don't know how close uh, to each other. But again, uh, uh, it's just, it's just uh, another attempt to uh, play with the, on the nerves of the West. That's the main thing. Is this a, a signal beyond the headline? Well, um, I, I think uh, it's a signal uh, for uh, Russian population, first of all, that yes, we are going to pull all the levers, we are going all nine yards and everything, but uh, it's, it's a bluff. And it's even more bluff uh, towards the West. And uh, it's just it's this desperate, desperate attempt to somehow stop what looks like more and more inevitable, uh, you know, uh, crushing uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive coming during this year. This is the main uh, event uh, of this year, maybe of this decade, that will shape how things will develop uh, uh, in the whole region, maybe even beyond. And well, other than that, uh, Putin is trying just to uh, look big uh, for uh, the so-called uh, deep Russian people, people outside Moscow and St. Petersburg. Is there a greater chance now that they'll actually use tactical nukes? What would that give them? <laughs> they just... Uh, uh, it, it just senseless. It makes no sense. Of course, this whole war makes no sense. It may. They are. Uh, that's why we were so wrong when he started this war because it just it was so suicidal for Russia. And nevertheless, he did. He did it. So there is always a chance that uh, the man is completely uh, unhinged and uh, crazy and insane. Uh, but in my opinion, he's just. Uh, he was just stupid. He was just overconfident uh, in February uh, 2022, and right now he's just trying to play this mad game, uh, madman game, you know. Uh, uh, so he's trying to uh, sound, look uh, uh, intimidating, unpredictable, but uh, truly, truly, he is just, uh, he is deep inside, he understands that he, that he is losing and uh, well, his only chance is uh, to really make people scared in Ukraine, in the West, uh, wherever in the world. Is, is there a continuance here? Is there, um, are there new developments? Are there predictable developments? Is this just a, um, a series of moves, that, like a chess game that Putin is engaging on with the Americans and, uh, and with his allies in Belarus? Well, quite frankly, uh, there are two big events uh, that uh, everybody was looking forward to uh, uh, during this year, and that would decide actually the uh, flow of this war after that. That that was Russian offensive and Ukrainian counteroffensive. The Russian offensive has started late last year, early this year, in the uh, town of uh, Bakhmut. Uh, now, three months later, uh, it's, it's still in the town of Bakhmut. Uh, so we have seen uh, what they are capable of. Now, there is something big coming. And I feel, I see, I hear this fear coming from all these, you know, Russian journalists, Russian politicians. Uh, they don't know what is coming upon them. Of course, there is huge tension in Ukraine, too, because we don't want to be disappointed. And we understand that... Uh, uh, from this strike that Ukraine will exert will depend everything and it should it must be crushing um, so this is this is uh, uh, everything else uh, including the games that Russia is trying to somehow uh, lead uh, uh, with uh, Western elites for instance I, I, I see it in 
in, in, in Europe, for instance, how they are trying to, uh, I don't know, uh, use this discontent uh, uh, within this anti-vaxxer group in uh, every European society. They are trying to somehow stretch their tentacles and uh, trying to, you know, uh, help uh, these uh, demonstrations in France, whatever. But this, everything is just uh, uh, on, on the margin. Uh, the most important thing is our coming counteroffensive. Sorry for sound, sounding monotone, monotonous, but this is how it is. All right. Uh, do you expect, and you and I talked about this last time you were on with us, that at some point these tactical nukes are going to be used by Russia? Uh, well, uh, these tactical nukes uh, would uh, bring Russia nothing. It would be the most insane uh, step, including in relations with China and India, uh, including uh, for the reputation of Russia. What, what Russia counts upon, and this is, uh, they, 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 they think it's serious, it might be indeed be serious, is this anti-Western alliance they're trying to uh, build uh, at first uh, with uh, China, and during the summer they're conducting this uh, Russia-Africa summit. And they want uh, to build this, you know, big anti-Western momentum. This is uh, uh, what 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 you look sh what should what you should look at, not uh, Russia's, you know, this you know rhetoric. We might use the nuclear. If they use the nukes, they lose the global south, so they won't do that. What will they do? Uh, when will, will will they do? No. What will they do? What will they do? They uh, will, uh, again, uh, try to build this global coalition uh, uh, against the West. So using their uh, um, uh, connections and uh, influence uh, within the BRICS countries, so Brazil, uh, Russia, India, China. They will uh, try to use all kinds of, you know, uh, whatever uh, uh, left uh, of influence uh, in the West, uh, uh, social democrats, leftists, the nationalists, uh, uh, all kinds of freaks, anti-vaxxers. There are there is, their name is legion. I mean, there are really many people who are in the West, especially who are not ready to listen to anything coming from their government and to practically everything uh, that comes from Putin for some reason. So it's still there uh, up their sleeve. But the, the reasonable people, the people uh, with, with conscience and with clear line between good and evil, they understand, I think, in the West, uh, what, uh, what, uh, what is what in this, uh, um, in this war and where is the evil and where uh, is the good. Therefore, I count on that. I, I count, I, I am a faithful person. I count on God because... You know, never in the newest history this line was as clear as it is right now. We knew something was coming. Um, President Xi uh, was not going to be leaving China to go to see Putin in in, Bay, in, in, in Moscow without some major announcement following. That was going to always be part of the trip, wasn't it not? Well, uh, I, I suppose Putin is a little bit disappointed to that in, in that regard because the mo the biggest announcement that uh, uh, President Xi did that was in the last minutes of the visit when uh, he was saying goodbye to Putin and the interpreter uh, was interpreting very loud for Putin so that the journalists would hear and uh, President Xi said, "Well, uh, this what you have what we have started." Uh, nobody has tried uh, uh, anything like that uh, in a very, very long time. Uh, and everybody is intrigued. What have they started? Is, does this mean that she is really on board with Putin? But again, I think it's just uh, uh, China's attempt uh, to uh, sound, uh, you know, uh, mysterious and to sound uh, more on the side of Russia, more than acting on the side of Russia. Okay. That's my feeling. We talked a lot about Bill C-69 in, on this program. And C-69 has implications for everybody in Canada. And there was a real effort made by the federal political parties to challenge C-69, which was... Um, 
favored by Mr. Trudeau and the Liberals. But what exactly does C-69 offer? What does it suggest? What is it going to bring your way and my way? Let's talk about that. And joining us is Catherine Brownlee. She's president of the Alberta Enterprise Group, Alberta Enterprise Group, and they are involved with this particular piece of legislation before the Supreme Court of Canada. Ms. Brownlee, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Uh, first of all, C-69, what's the significance of C-69 in March of 2023? Well, it's, unfortunately, it's a, a significant change for many of us. We already are at uh, a situation in Canada, and, and certainly I'll speak from Alberta just because I'm representing Alberta Enterprise Group, but we feel that it it's just another layer of regulatory um, control and unfortunately without any direct guidelines as to how long assessments would take um, for any project it would need to be approved provincially and federally and it's just layers and layers of red tape and already we are um, I think it was 2017 we were ranked 64th country and able to turn a large project and get it approved. And this layer will make it much worse than that. Are you surprised that C-69 continues to generate as much attention and um, receives as much attention as, as it is receiving from, from the federal government in, in the spring of 2023? I think many people would have said, just a subjective opinion here, but I think many people might have said two years ago, Look, they'll decide uh, they'll do away with this and they'll just quietly make sure that it's not a not a prominent issue as we head into the next federal election. Looks like it's going to be exactly that. It'll be a prominent issue that the Liberals are going to take to the bank. Yeah, he, well, certainly they definitely want to take this to the bank, as you said. They're, they are focused on it because they want to ensure that uh, resources that they are not necessarily in agreement with our lockdown, and yet we will continue bringing um, resources from other countries in into Canada, where ours, it, I'll just use energy, oil and gas as an example, that ours is much cleaner than other parts of the world, yet we still continue to bring it in and, and sell ours at wholesale. How does C-69 affect us? By us, I mean collectively in this country, our 10 provinces and our, and our territories as well. How, how does it affect us as far as doing our business is concerned and doing it productively? There's countless reasons as to what this will do to us. Um, already, investors have turned. There's more outgoing investment from Canada than incoming. This will make it much worse. Global investors are always looking for, as we know, the opportunity where there is um, more yes than no. And unfortunately, they've already seen Canada as a no country. And certainly, unfortunately, where Alberta is in all of this, and even Saskatchewan, of course, um, this is directly affecting us. And, and I personally think that, and this is not an AG, this is just me personally. I've been in oil and gas for 30 years. My family was in oil and gas. And, and we're proud Albertans in that way, that we're proud of our resources. And we feel that this is yet another way to lock us down. We are landlocked here. There's, we need to get to Tidewater. We need to be able to get this out to market. And this, again, is yet another layer of shutting us in. So the Trudeau government has its agenda. It had its agenda when C-69 was introduced. It's the same agenda now in March of uh, 2023. And uh, it's out of touch with the realities of uh, this year. And it's out of touch with the needs of this country. What would you uh, what would you suggest would be the most productive way of dealing with C sixty nine? Rewrite it uh, completely, drop it, and start all over again, or is C sixty nine completely out of touch with uh, with what's relevant now? It's certainly out of touch. If we wish to establish a framework to strengthen Canada's economy and future prosperity then we need to, to need a better development regulatory process. This would be a process that appropriately balances the care for the environment we all want with the economic and resource development we need within appropriate constitutional boundaries to ensure prosperity now and for our future. 
Share with us, please, what C69, in fact, means to the average Canadian. Well, the average Canadian that I have heard from, and I'm sure you have in Saskatchewan, is that we already feel that we are uh, shackled with every move we try to make. That is our current state. When this, if the federal government is successful, this will truly lock us down. It will be years to get approval on assessments. It will be, it's, it's just truly trying to block us in every possible way. So this is the objective of Mr. Trudeau. Regardless of 100%. what else he may say, the objective is to lock the prairie provinces in. 100%. That, that's my, my opinion. It's Alberta Enterprise member opinions. And it's also something that we've noticed since his father was in as our prime minister. I think this is just where he, he picks it up after his father left it. And he's seen this through. What's the, uh, what's the most effective way of countering C-69? Uh, doing what we're all doing. Intervening. Get behind the groups that are already... Um, involved and at the Supreme Court level, um, help them do their work the very best of their ability. We, we've co-partnered on this one with ICBA. It's a large Canadian organization as well that feels the same way we do. We have a great constitutional lawyer. Um, if there are listeners out there that want to get involved with either ICBA or AEG or other organizations like ours that are doing our best to intervene, I recommend that getting behind them, we're already lobbying, we're registered lobbyists, we're, we're active and we're, we're not going to give up. So if they, if they want to come in behind and support, that would be very uh, much appreciated. So how much support are you getting from the average Canadian, from the Canadian family, not only in the Prairie provinces, but uh, on the east and the west coast as well? What, what, what are you hearing from? the people who actually ultimately are going to have the final say, because we know an election is coming. It's, it has to happen in the next two years. What, do, what, uh, what are you expecting? Well, admittedly, as the president of AEG, my focus has really been our Alberta members. Right. I certainly do have a large network from my own consulting practice, and I have friends across the country. I would say that our prairie provinces are... 99% in agreement with what, how we feel about stopping and re, uh, stopping this whole process and relooking at it or blow it up and start all over again. Uh, but I do have pockets of people across Canada that don't. There, there's another part that does not even understand that this is happening, doesn't even know what Bill C-69 is, doesn't understand the implications of it. And then there's some very small pocket, generally my friends that are in the Toronto area, uh, Ontario area, Quebec, not all, I mean, Quebec is very, very much aligned with us in many ways too, but I will say that uh, the friends that I have in, in Ontario just are going along with whatever the Prime Minister says is is true and fact and good, that they, they're in full belief that, that, that whatever he says is good. So the Alberta Enterprise Group sees the Supreme Court as being a functionary for the uh, for the Prime Minister's office. Well, the Prime Minister the Prime Minister's office actually put and assigned many of the um, leaders that are in the Supreme Court into that those roles. So personally, I think there's a there's definitely a, a large liberal uh, contingent that is there. Absolutely. What's your uh, What's your greatest fear? that this actually passes through without enough of us fighting back. And do you think that there's a realistic chance that that could, in fact, happen? 100%. So we have the by-election in uh, the city of Toronto for mayor, and we have another election coming up in the United States of America. The Donald Trump election, as somebody called it the other day. I happened to be watching a, a news channel, and they called it the Donald Trump election. And uh, the one of the people who was on that panel said, "Are you uh, are you saying that this is uh, about Donald Trump?" And the uh, person said, "Yeah, absolutely. It's not about anybody else. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for Donald Trump." So it's the Donald Trump election campaign, is it? It is, is it? So <laughs> you can answer your question before you ask it in this case. So uh, of course, Mr. Trump has his troubles. 
Are they now sufficient in number and scope that the former president of the United States must resign the arguably most powerful office in the world before he uh, can run for it again? My good friend John Zogby is with us, johnzogbystrategies.com. He's one of the United States' leading pollsters nationally, internationally as well. His book, well, he has many, but uh, the book that I enjoy is We Are Many, We Are One. And uh, John joins us on The Roy Green Show. How are you, John? Hey, good, Roy. How have you been? I'm, I'm fine. I'm trying to get through with Canadian elections, by-elections, American elections, not by-elections, but American elections. It looks like everybody has a pencil in their hand these days. So here we are. And uh, before, I, before I ask you anything specific, the generic question, who's the favorite? Oh, right now, I think it's a tie. Actually, depending on the polls, some have Trump ahead by a couple of points, or DeSantis on the Republican side over Biden. Others have Biden in the lead by one or two. It's, um, it, it is too close to call. So is this good news for Mr. Trump, or is this bad news for the former president? Um, it is bad news uh, for Mr. Trump, um, simply because one would expect if, if the incumbent is as unpopular as he says the incumbent is, then, and if he is indeed the, the unquestioned um, frontrunner, uh, for the Republican nomination, again, as he says, um, then he should be polling over 50 percent and beating a, quote, unpopular, unquote, president. But that's in his mind. Um, and, and so it is bad news. Um, even with a, a tie, um, remember, we, we have still very high inflation. Um, we still have a president who, while his polling numbers um, have been edging up a little bit, you know, at about 46 percent uh, approval. The, the current president is still very much in the game. So uh, regardless of how challenging the environment may become politically for Mr. Trump, he's still in the game. He's still in the game. Yeah, he um, uh, clearly, you know, there is opposition to Mr. Trump. Within his own party, uh, there are uh, among independents as well, and and so um, it's going to be very difficult for him to grow support. I, I mean, the bottom would have to completely fall uh, under um, Joe Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee will be. I, su- I suppose, you know, it, it will be Joe Biden. But yeah, I, um, um, Donald Trump. Everybody knows who he is. I mean, so everybody's formed an opinion on him. It's not a favorable balance in terms of their opinion on him, but he has to grow from where he is, and his opportunities to grow, um, uh, you know, are not, uh, are not substantial. John, are these, uh, these numbers that are not favorable toward Mr. Trump, are they sufficient in number and scope? that he must resign the arguably most powerful office, public office in the world? Well, he doesn't hold public office. You know what I mean, though. World. You know what I mean. No. So, so I he, he, I, he I, has I to emotionally, emotionally has to, has to resign it. Well, you know, this last time around, there, there were about 15 or 16 Republicans splitting the vote against him. And, you know, in the early runs, um, he got just enough, a little bit more than just enough to knock out uh, some folks. And then he built momentum and and the re- Republicans rallied around him. Now there are only a few candidates. I want to talk about Ron DeSantis in a few minutes if we get a, if we get a second. Um, but uh, Trump has enough right now, maybe to be, yes, indeed, to be considered the the front runner, but he doesn't have a majority of Republicans. Uh, and there is real opposition uh, to him, not only among moderate Republicans, but uh, conservative Republicans. He also, at this point in time, seems to be on a very personal level, falling apart at the seams, um, may, maybe crossing a line where it's, it's time to 
start questioning, um, you know, his his public behavior. Um, a, a few examples. Uh, he, he he's it looks like he's on the verge of um, of being indicted in in New York. Uh, last last night he um, uh, went on social media, his own social media, with a baseball bat, threatening the prosecutor and pledging death and destruction if he's charged uh, with any crime. All this within all this within 24 hours of um, the prosecutor receiving an envelope with white powder in it and a, a note saying, um, I will kill you. Now, that's not from Trump, but it's just uh, what it is, is a, a, a confluence of events that, you know, are making a lot of people scratch their heads. I can only imagine uh, this, this must have shaken you, startled you for for a former president to be making a statement like that. It, it, it is. And, you know, you want to say, well, you're, you've become sort of inured to, to this sort of thing, but this is, this is way over the top. I mean, so much so that his own wife says, I don't want to have anything to do with any of this anymore. I'm going to protect my son. And the, his daughter, uh, Ivanka, and her husband are, as far away from all of this by design as uh, as they can get. So his world uh, seems to be falling apart. You know, he's got a solid base, but it's not as rock solid um, as it had been. So, so when you look at the uh, when you look at the candidates that are running for the presidency, John, who do you who do you favor at this point? How, who who would you as a pollster say? The situation as it exists today on the 25th of March, 2023 favors. Who does it favor? I would have to say Joe Biden. Now, even though 62% of voters don't want Joe Biden to run again, and that includes the majority of Democrats, but the fact of the matter is when offered with a choice, um, uh, voters seem to be uh, more favorable to Biden or more unfavorable to Trump. Uh, Ron DeSantis is competitive going against Joe Biden. But again, you know, given the the problems that the United States uh, finds it, itself in, it's it's really amazing that, um, you know, the opposition isn't well ahead of, of the incumbent. So Joe Biden is kind of holding his own right now and holding his own even uh, even better, given what's happening in the opposition party. So, so now we have we have uh, Joe Biden, mm-hmm. we have Donald Trump, mm-hmm. we have Ron DeSantis, mm-hmm. we have others somewhat well known, some not so well known. Certainly, they all are going to have a profile very quickly. Uh, mm-hmm. Run for president of the United States, you can't help but get a profile. And of of the whole crew, of all of them, who has the personality, and or how important is the personality aspect of the candidate, uh, John? Okay. How 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 significant is the personality aspect? Oh no, the personality is very important. You have to like uh, the candidate as a person. You have to be able to bond with them somehow. Um, you know, up until Trump, who. In, in so many ways, broke all of the rules. Generally, the smiling, more um, affable candidate wins uh, the, the presidency. I mean, arguably, he was more affable and more funny than Hillary Clinton in, in 2016. Um, but in this case, I mean, the edge clearly goes to Joe Biden. Joe, is, Joe Biden is always able to turn on that every man. Uh, personality that that Irish Paul uh, slapping your shoulder at, at the bar, Uncle Joe, and then of course, like so many other successful presidential candidates, he has a humanizing story um, about his father, and then of course about his son uh, who who passed away, and that of of course is uh, beyond tragedy. What it is is the it is a bonding story. 
So at this moment, on the 25th of March, 2023, you would say the front runner, emotionally, would be Biden. I do, yes. And then does Trump has, have enough gas in the tank to potentially overcome any lead that Biden has? Well, he's going to have to, like he did in, in 2016, rally the Republican base and then win among independents. He was able to do that in 2016, you know, by virtue of the fact that he ran against someone who was least trusted to tell the truth than he was uh, and less affable. Uh, in 2020, the, the, the gas tank was, you know, on a, on a quarter uh, full, um, you know, for, for Donald Trump. And he ran against someone who was, you know, kind of the antithesis mm-hmm. of, of Donald Trump. So this time around, he's got a lot more baggage. You know, he, uh, you know, I'm, I'm being very cautious here. It looks like he will be indicted uh, in New York, uh, in Georgia for you know, election tampering in Washington for, you know, um, possessing and meaning no good uh, by uh, by having uh, classified documents uh, and then having to have his home raided, raided because by the FBI uh, because he refused to turn over those classified documents. So it looks like he's in a, a heap big amount of trouble. Um, and that, you know, that can't help. At the very least, what it does is it takes the off message. Well, it's fascinating, uh, and I'm not just saying that, I'm not playing word games here. It is fascinating to see this develop, to see yeah. Donald Trump. Yeah. Some would argue he's the incumbent. I know he's not, but some would argue that he's the incumbent, and therefore he has the strength on his side. He isn't, and, and he doesn't, but some would say that. It is going to be fascinating to see how this develops over the next, how many months? This is almost, just over a year, isn't it? Oh, yeah, it's it, uh, just under a year when the primaries begin. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they'll begin uh, the first week of February. And then, yeah, we're looking at a, a just, really just a year and a half yeah. until the general election. You know, we, we never rule Donald Trump out. Let, let me be clear on that. But he's got some disadvantages this time around that he didn't have the two previous times. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.